Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 360 with Ryan Benici. Ryan has had a pretty quick career climb, and he's so kind as to share some of his pro tips on how you can do the same. So you'll learn one, two core principles for mastering your craft, two, how to get good at giving and receiving feedback, and three, two LinkedIn tricks that make all the difference. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F360. And while at awesomeatyourjob.com, I hope you'll check out some cool stuff, including the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course, which gives you some quick tips for slashing through waste at work so you can get home early or have more time that's not so urgently frantic to do cool, creative, strategic stuff. That's the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course. And those tips tend to shave over 80 minutes of waste per person per week on out of there. Now here's Ryan's story. Ryan Benici is the Chief Marketing Officer at G2 Crowd, where he's driving growth of the world's leading B2B technology review platform. It's really good. I like it myself for checking out software. That's helping more than one and a half million business professionals make informed purchasing decisions every single month. Prior to G2 Crowd, Ryan held several leadership roles in some of the most well-recognized companies in the tech industry. He served as a Senior Director of Global Marketing at HubSpot, where his efforts led to triple-digit growth for the company's marketing-related sales. Big thanks to Ryan for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Now, here is Ryan. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Pete. It's great to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into both your story and your tactics. So maybe you could orient us a little bit to your career journey as it started as a flight attendant and then how that kind of progressed to a, a really cool trajectory. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, look, I um, I was kind of one of those kids going through school that was just always told um, that, you know, he has real potential, he just needs to work harder. And for some reason, I'm not sure what, what it was exactly, but in kind of year nine um, back in Australia, something just like flicked in my head. And so years 10, 11, and 12, I worked really, really hard, um, got a really good GPA of 4.0, like worked my ass off. Um, and then I started doing university in Sydney, Australia, and I just like was super not interested in it. Um, so I, over the holidays, applied for a job with Qantas Airways um, because they were taking on international flight attendants. Um, you know, there was huge interviews. It was a really long process. Long story short, I got the job. Um, and so I did that for a couple of years. And it was always a short term thing for me because I ultimately just wanted to travel. I wanted to save up money, um, which allowed me to buy it you know, my first investment property when I was like 19. Um, and so I was kind of really focused on traveling and just like starting to make savings and um, always knew I would get back to university and get back to my marketing degree. Um, I had always kind of known weirdly from like the age of maybe 18 that I wanted to be a CMO before the age of 30. And just after my 29th birthday, I actually joined G2 Crowd as a CMO. So it was really timely uh, I've been really lucky. Everything has gone to, to plan, fortunately. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the background, really, on the flight attendant thing. A bit of an odd job. And then I, um, I then went back to university and did flying on the weekends and did university throughout the week. And it was kind of hard to juggle it, but it, but it was fun. And, um, and I learned a lot. And I'm someone that gets bored easily, so I need to be doing lots of different things. So, so it worked well. That's cool. And so while working as a flight attendant, did you form some connections or some skills or some insights that helped 
lay some good groundwork for your future success? Yeah, you know, I think I did. I mean, it was, you know, Qantas, um, for anyone listening, Qantas is actually the world's oldest and most experienced airline. So they had the first kind of like commercial airline up and running and it was set in like Queensland, the Northern Territory, which is what Qantas stands for. And I think one thing that I learned that Qantas does incredibly well um, is customer service and just how like your customers are the lifeblood of your business. And so, you know, Qantas did a really amazing job at training their staff and their flight attendants because at the end of the day, they're really the main people that the consumers are interacting with. Um, and so I think I learned a lot about customer service and I learned a lot about um, word of mouth marketing and just the importance of like having a cohesive message. So that was one thing I think I learned from that early experience. Um, but then I also was able to eventually start to move and work more in you know our business class and first class cabins. And I just started having fascinating conversations with different executives that were traveling different places for work. So, you know, I had the CEO of Qantas on at one point in time, I had different celebrities on, I just had different executives and, and learned a lot from them. And actually it was, I moved them from Qantas to, to Microsoft into my first kind of marketing role, um, off of kind of the insight from a marketing executive at uh, Microsoft that mentioned to me that they were hiring um, and so I learned about that and then went through the hiring process and started my, my marketing career at Microsoft. So it all worked out really, really well. But um, I'm just like one of those business geeks that just loves to chat with executives and business people and learn ultimately about like what gets them up in the morning, what they love about their business, what are they doing? I, I just am innately fascinated by that. Well, that's really cool. And I'm imagining when you say you picked up some insights from these executives, like during the course of those interviews, you probably had some real smart things to say, like, whoa, we weren't expecting that level of uh, strategic insight from this kid. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I've, I've kind of always been one of those kids. That, I mean, I'm a child and I think I was always around adults from a really young age. And so I, I'm not afraid kind of, I guess, to share my opinion. I have lots of opinions on different things and I'm really passionate about those opinions and those thoughts. And, and I equally like love to like discourse and, you know, learn about other people's opinions and kind of argue about our opinions. I think that's a little bit of an Australian cultural, um, paradigm. That's just, yeah, something that's kind of been in me from the get go. And so I think that's probably helped me throughout my career, but definitely back then when I was quite a bit younger and, as I was getting to know these people, I think it kind of made me a little bit more memorable and, and also it allowed me to stand out from everyone else because most other maybe flight attendants that were speaking to these executives probably, you know, felt like it was too personal maybe to ask them about their work or what they were doing for business. Whereas I was just, you know, genuinely interested. That's really cool. Well, so one of your other passions beyond business and strategy and marketing is helping young professionals figure out their path and move forward and progress. And you did a real nice job as I reviewed your slides of crystallizing some key principles and perspectives on that at the Drift Hypergrowth 2018 event. So I'd love it if you could kind of just walk us through some of the greatest hits with regard to the five steps you shared there. Yeah, sure thing, Pete. So the five kind of, I guess, like high level things that I, I talked through at Drift's conference was, and I'll just run you through them quickly first, but the first one was mastering your craft. The second was solving big problems. The third was building your brand. The fourth was getting good at feedback. And the fifth was just some, you know, advanced hacks that I have kind of learned throughout the years that I wanted to kind of 
give folks as takeaways. And I think, you know, it's worth maybe mentioning, but I'm a big believer. And I think, you know, you and your audience are fans of this too, but I'm just like a big believer in like really practical advice. So like things that are really tactical that someone can immediately go and do themselves straight out to listen to this. And so that's how I guess I built out my presentation for a Drift conference. And that's how I build out all my presentations, regardless of what the topic is, because I think there's so many people that can talk about the fluffy strategy. Um, and I really like to kind of marry that with like really tactical things that anyone can do right now. And so if we guess I jump into a few of those, I think some of the, the things that I try and teach my team at G2 Crowd and I have a team of about 30 marketers at G2, is that like every single person on my team really needs to own a number and it needs to be like an important number for the business. And so, you know, it's really my job and my leadership team's job to help those team members actually know what their numbers are and to help them understand how those numbers actually roll up to the bigger business. So an example here might be, right, like if you're a social media marketer, um, and, you know, you might have been given a number of like, you know, grow our followers from 10,000 followers to 20,000 followers in a year. Um, you know, a lot of like social media marketers will be given a target like that. That's a pretty normal kind of thing. Grow your followers. And they won't ever like ask for understanding of, okay, cool. Yeah, I can grow my followers from 10,000 to 20,000. But how is this going to help the business? A lot of people just like do what they're told and they never kind of stop and, and question why. And so, you know, in an ideal world, right? Like if they ask their boss, their boss would say, well, hey, look, we find for every 10 followers we have, every time we post that increases the number of likes that we get on those posts by 10%. And that increases the number of people clicking through then to our site, which helps us drive more leads and then MQL. So by doubling the followers, you're doubling the amount of traffic that you're going to get from social referral traffic over the course of the year, which will help us. Now, that's just an example, right? But like, you know, that's, again, helping that social media marketer understand how their follower count ties into traffic count and that traffic count ties into leads and leads ties into MQLs and MQLs ties into sales revenue. So I think it's just really, really crystal, like crystal uh, important that everyone actually be able to know what their number is and how it rolls up. And could you give us some examples of some additional numbers? I'm thinking maybe outside the marketing function. And particularly because I think a lot of times we think about, oh, man, owning a number, that's for directors and vice presidents, you know, in order to own that sort of thing. But I like it sort of a social media follower count use an example of a number that someone, you know, maybe in the first few years of their career might have ownership of. So could you give us some other examples of numbers that aren't too senior and are on different functions? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, everyone in every role can have these numbers. And I think it's just, that's the key is to work out what they are. So you know, you might be a, you know, a junior recruiter and you've just joined a company as like a recruiting associate. And it's your job to, you know, run interviews, for example, right? Or to maybe source candidates for roles that you're hiring, um, you, or whether you're an intern or whatnot. The company's role or the recruiting team might have a goal of say like, you know, we have 50 open roles that we need to get filled by the end of this quarter. Um, and then they might divvy out all of those jobs across, say, their recruiters um, and so, you know, regardless of how senior you are, or how junior you are, you kind of need to chat with your boss and work out, okay, like of that big team number, like what portion am I responsible for? Um, and if you're really junior, maybe you're not responsible for that high level number, but you might be responsible for like a leading metric that ties into that. So an example might be number of applications. Yeah, exactly. Number of applications or the number of calls that you run with people or the number of kind of approved candidates that you hand through to the recruiting manager or anything like that. You know, if you're a BDR, so a business development rep, 
you know, your numbers might be the number of calls you do a day, the number of meetings you set for sales. I'm just trying to think on the flag what different roles are in our team. Like if you're in accounting, if you're in accounting and you're a junior in the team, you know, the accounting team's metric might be, hey, we need to close out all of our invoices by the end of the month and get payment on 90% of them. And so you might have a metric of like, okay, I'm going to send, you know, three emails over the course of four weeks before, you know, the accounting payments are due so that we increase the number of people that pay us. And I would be, you know, monitoring like, okay, last month, 80% of people paid us on time. Let's change it and do a few more activities to try and get 85% this month and then 90%. So it doesn't really matter. Like there's this, there's a number that you can apply and connect to everything. And, and I think that really connects in with kind of the second big kind of core thing that I talked about with regard to, um, mastering your craft. And that was reverse engineering, um, your funnel. So, you know, we just talked through some funnels then, right? Like the number of people that apply for a job, the number of people that then do interviews, the number of those interviews that make it through the stage one, two, and three, and then the number of people you hire. Um, everyone has a funnel in every element of the business. And what I think most people don't do a good job of is actually like knowing what are the average conversion rates for my funnel um, and then working backwards. So like, let's say your boss says for next month, hey, um, you know, little Jesse who does recruiting or is that a recruiting intern? Like next month, you need to generate, um, you know, five times as many people into jobs. So like then you would say, okay, well, if I need to generate five times as many job fillings, then I probably need to like run through five times as many um, different LinkedIn profiles right at the top of the funnel. Um, and so I kind of gave a lot of different examples of how you can think about reverse engineering your funnel, whether you're an email marketer or a PR person or a sales rep, like everything can be reverse engineered. And I think that's just one of those tactics that like not enough people in business do. And it sets them up for failure by not doing that because you might be trying to achieve something like that 50, 50 different heads to fill in a month might be really unrealistic, um, but you'll just accept it and go after it and then you'll fail but if you would have reverse engineered it from the get-go, you might be able to then say to your boss, hey, I just ran the numbers for this. And if we want to hit that number, we're going to need to do 5x the number of applications. And how are we going to get that? Like, we might need help. So does that kind of make sense, Pete? Absolutely, yes. What's really nifty is I'm taking a look at your funnels right now. And I'm curious, you sort of laid them out in the world of email and PR and social media. How would you recommend, you know, what would be some good sources that we might go to in order to identify, you know, what are some appropriate benchmark ratios in other fields? You know, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in that, like, there's no such thing as like accurate benchmarks. Okay. <laughs> um, just because I think every single business is different and every single role is different. And so, you know, if you're a recruiter and you're trying to recruit C-level executives, you know, that's going to take a lot longer. The funnel is going to be very different to if you're trying to recruit, you know, junior entry-level positions. And, you know, if we change industries and look at like a finance executive versus a marketing exec, it might be different again. So those funnels in my deck that I ran through are more so kind of the methodology for how someone should think about building this for their own business. So they would need to input their own metrics um, and then look at what their conversion rates are for themselves. Because I think, you you really just can't apply um, standards here because a lot of these funnels they're they're purpose built for like very specific things. Mm -hmm. Well, and I guess it's interesting if we're talking about solving big problems here. One big problem could be wait a second, you know, we're converting at like half of the rate somewhere that we should. This is broken and it needs to get fixed. And so 
I'm wondering if you have any intuition on how you might get a sense for if um, you can know the way sort of the ratios have unfolded historically. And, and that's very helpful in terms of kind of planning out. All right. Well, then just how much activity do we need at each of these phases to get our end goal? So that's really cool. But I'm wondering further, any pro tips for zeroing in on, hmm, this part is broken and needs to get fixed. Yeah, well, I definitely think like you can zero in once you once you've laid out, I guess, the numbers for your funnel for whatever it is, whether it's a recruiting funnel or you know a, a, an email marketing campaign funnel or it's a like anything funnel. Ultimately, like it could even be literally a simple funnel of like generating like employees completing the monthly net promoter score survey. Right, mm-hmm. like every month I send out a survey to my team, um, and it it asks them a really simple question from like one to ten, like how happy are you at work? Um, and, you know, and I know if I send, you know, four reminder emails to them uh, versus two, I'll get probably double the amount of people that fill it out at the end of the month. Um, so like, you know, regardless of whatever the funnel is that you're building, I think you need to just map out what are the different activities throughout it and what are the conversion rates. And then you need to start to look at some of the drop-offs, right? So if, if it's that employee net promoter score survey and you're sending lots of emails, and only, you know, 5% of people are opening. Um, but then of those people that open, you have like 50% of people completing it. Then you'd probably say, okay, well, the message in the email obviously is engaging people because anyone that opens is completing it, but we're struggling to get people to open it in the first place. So like, you know, then we have to look at, is it the time of day that we're sending it? Is it the subject line? Like what factors could be affecting that? Are we sending it on a busy day when they're doing other things? Um, and that's really how you then start to work out, okay, like where is my funnel leaky is how I would think about it. Like where is water falling out of the funnel? Yeah, that's good. So it's just sort of the absolute number ratios can give you some hints. And in some ways, I guess you might think for like a cold email, you'd be like, well, hey, well, we don't really expect a whole lot of, of opens on a totally cold mm-hmm. email to strangers. Exactly. But in the context you presented there, it is internal and that might get you thinking about having some sort of benchmark ratio in terms of, well, hey, if we look at the other emails that get sent around our company, the open rates are, you know, triple this, you know, what's wrong? It's like, oh, and then I think that's where things get interesting. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think like whenever you're comparing funnels to like marketing funnels, right, which there's been lots of research done into them and you have a high volume of data that you can look at. So email is a really easy example. Web traffic and conversions is an easy example. Yes, you can definitely find some benchmarks. Um, Again, I don't know how important I would be leaning on those. I'd still be looking at your own data. Oh, sure. But once you start to get, you know, most people are marketers, right? That's just like one role in a company. And once you get out of those like roles, you know, the methodology and what I'm trying to help teach people understand is that like you should just be reverse engineering whatever it is that you've been asked to do to work at how you can most successfully do it. Mm-hmm. Certainly. And, and I think that within your own data, you can grab some good stuff. It's like, hey, the other emails we send internally. How do those compare here? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that just gets really exciting when you discover, oh, wait, this tiny little thing we're doing is dumb. <laughs> Let's fix it. Like, oh, it turns out we're using a tiny font that is really hard and obnoxious to look through. Uh, let's cut that out right away. And oh, boom, you know, there you have it. It's pretty thrilling, at least for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's when it's when you actually stop and actually start to analyze the impact of the different things that you're doing in a business that things get really interesting. And, you know, I find so often that businesses and and employees never actually stop and, and properly analyze their activities to look at like the impact, you know, everyone's running around, everyone says they're busy, and no doubt they are. 
but like being busy and working on unimportant things is, is very different to being busy and working on important critical projects. And so, you know, an example that I can think of that comes to mind from when I joined G2 Crowd was, you know, I noticed when I first joined that um, the company placed a lot of emphasis on having every employee do social sharing of content that we were creating as a company. So let's say there was a news article about G2 Crowd or um, we created our own content a lot of people would post it to Slack and everyone would, every manager would say, Hey, you know, John, Jesse, everyone, please share this to your social channels. We want to get this news out there. And I was doing some analysis when I joined and I basically was seeing that like there was all of this activity being done. Everyone was taking out people's time on their team to have them to share content on social. And I understood why, right? Naturally, like you want to share happy news about your business that makes the employees feel good. And it's an exciting thing. But because most people at a company don't really have many followers on Twitter or on LinkedIn, we were getting a very insignificant amount of net new traffic and engagement on this content, purely because like most employees are junior, most employees don't have big networks, no one is clicking on their content. And so it was just like an interesting thing that I saw when I came in and I noticed that like, wow, we spend so much time getting everyone to do this and no one's actually stopped and looked at like, how much traffic does it actually drive for us? And it's driving nothing. So like, let's stop wasting everyone's time. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That's great. All right. So you master the craft, solving big problems. And how does one build the brand? Yeah. So I think like this is a really interesting one that like a lot of people sort of don't really think enough about. And and I think like to build your own personal brand at work is is really, really key because that personal brand that you build, it, does, it doesn't just help you um, today and in the future. It helps the company that you're working for. I always try and preface like this like hack or this tip with people on the basis of like, there's no point trying to build a strong personal brand if you don't actually have a unique point of view. Because, you know, if you don't have a unique point of view, you're not going to develop a strong brand. You're just going to like be sharing your opinion. <laughs> and if your opinion isn't unique or different or interesting or complex or has something unique about it, like you're just adding to the noise and, you know, no, no reason why you maybe shouldn't do that if you want to and get that out there, but it's probably not going to give you the effect that you're hoping for. So I'd say like, that's the key thing is to work out like, what is it that's a unique angle that you have a unique perspective or insight into that you can share content of um, authentically. Um, and once you know what that is, I think like, for people that are junior in their career or even more senior, the easiest place to start is with your company blog. So, you know, most companies are doing content marketing or inbound marketing today. Um, most of those content and inbound marketing teams don't have enough time to create enough content. And so they always welcome someone willing to create some content for the company blog. So, you know, my step is like my step one recommendation is like reach out to your content team or your blogging team or your marketing team. If it's a team of one, um, and literally say, hey, like, what's a topic that you've been wanting to write content for on the blog that, you know, I maybe could create for you and go ahead, do that, write it really well, have them edit it and start to get some content up and live on the internet from like your company. Because that's automatically then starting to help you build your reputation and build, you know, a bit of an online footprint for who you are. Um, and then what I recommend people do is after they've done that a little bit, I'd suggest that they start to like reach out to, you know, maybe very kind of junior or small tier, low tier kind of press and media outlets in their city or in their industry um, and write a guest post for them. Um, and, and in my slides, which if you head over to my Twitter account, it's 
twitter.com forward slash Ryan Benici, just my name. You can download the slides that I'm running through because I have some templates in there for the emails that I recommend sending to the, the editor of the different publications and, and what my follow-up emails look like. Um, but basically, like once you get um, a piece mentioned in one of those um, you know, publications, then you reference that and then you reach out to a tier two publication. And then once you get a few of those published, you mention those and then you reach out to a tier one publication. And I've done this myself over the last few years and worked my way up from, you know, small industry press in Sydney that no one out in the US would probably know about to then, you know, being a regular contributor for Entrepreneur. And now more recently, I'm writing for The Telegraph and for Harvard Business Review. And I think I have a post coming out for MIT's journal um, tomorrow. So, you know, I've only done that through just working my way up and creating content. And I wouldn't have been able to work my way up if A, I didn't start small, but B, most importantly, like I had a unique opinion on on different things. So I'd say building your brand's key. Can you give us a bit of an example in terms of what does it look, sound, feel like to have a unique point of view versus just to be everything else? So could you give us a couple examples of, hey, not unique sounds like this, whereas unique sounds like that? <laughs> sure. I mean, look, I did an interview recently for like the Telegraph, right? And basically, like it was all about kind of how I network on planes. Yeah. And so like an example of a boring article that the Telegraph wouldn't have written is like if I wrote them a piece of content that said, like, here's what you should do on a plane, go to sleep and watch a movie. <laughs> like everyone does that. Instead, I said to them, hey, I do something that's different that no one else does on planes. Like I have like a set of questions that I like to ask my neighbor. I'm like good at gauging if they're interested or not. I work out like who they are. I research them on LinkedIn. If I can see their name from their boarding pass, blah, 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 a little bit stalky. Um, that's different. That's unique. Like naturally now they want to write about that. Um, so that was like, you know, a flight, a flight example with regard to networking. But similarly, you know, if, you know, I write a lot about, um, marketing and, you know, a boring article that is not unique and no one would write would be an article for me saying digital marketing is, is important. Like mm -hmm. no marketing industry press is going to like publish that because obviously everyone that follows them knows that. But if I wrote an article about how like digital marketing is dying and here are some data points to back that up or digital marketing is transforming, like transforming and here's why and etc. Like now we're talking about something a little bit more interesting. So, um, you know, a unique angle really comes down to just building out like what is the interest with the story and are you sharing something that's new that people don't know or is a different take on something? Um, you know, if you look at like the way Trump does media, like he's obviously very good at trying to have unique angles for things um, that are very different, very, um, um, I guess, like confrontational. Like That's kind of a big part of like what hooks press and gets them interested um, so you kind of, you need to try and like adapt that in the same way, if that makes sense. Yes. You know, and I think in many ways, it's almost like, you know, it when you see it at the onset and it's almost sort of like just refusing to write something just cause you should You're like, Oh, you know, I write a blog post every month. Yeah. And as opposed to, Oh, now that's something. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. And I take notes like throughout, like I don't have a regular cadence for these because just to exactly your point, like, these ideas come up throughout the day, throughout the week. And I find the best way to start for people that are new to this, that um, are still trying to get their heads around what's their unique angle is, I always say the best place to start is like, think about like what frustrates you the most at work. So, you know, you might do a regular meeting, you might be in a meeting, right? And like, 
you might just be frustrated because meetings are always unproductive. That could be a unique angle, right? Like saying, hey, like most meetings are horribly unproductive and these are the five reasons why they're unproductive. And here are like the three easiest things that you can do right now to make your meetings at work more productive and to help you be better at your job. And those things are A, like require that there's always an agenda written into the meeting invite to um, if it doesn't need to be a brainstorm and they're just sharing content, it doesn't need to be a meeting and three, blah, like, you know, like, so that could be one example of like the way you kind of find an idea. It's through that frustration at work or you might, you know, just have, you know, a regular meeting where you're told in that meeting, Oh, that's like a really good idea. You have a good like viewpoint on this topic. Um, and whatever that topic might be, then like you then need to kind of like quantify and kind of just like build out what that view is outside of just an opinion and, um, and, and formalize it and share it with people. Like, you know, if we use just my presentation from hypergrowth last week, like, you know, I, you know, I've been told by lots of people that like, you know, I've moved up in my career pretty quickly to become a CMO by 30. And so I just thought about like, what has made me successful? And that was where I got to kind of like these five kind of key things that work for me. But, you know, a lot of that came from me just reflecting and, and working out like, what actually was it? Like, what are some things that I do that most people don't do? And, you know, I think everyone can do that for their own domain, their own, you know, part of the business or their own skill set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I dig that, that when it comes to the frustration, it means mm-hmm. it's resonating for you. Yes. In the sense that your frustration kind of equals something is happening and it's wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you're getting frustrated, then other people probably are too in those similar situations. So, you know, you've got like a hook, an interesting topic that's going to be relevant most likely. And then I think the next step is, and this actually ties funnily enough really nicely into my fourth tip of like get good at feedback is, you know, one thing that I always try and teach my team is, you know, it's one thing to get frustrated with something. um, But if you're just getting frustrated and you're complaining, you're not doing your job, like you're failing and you should be fired. Like great employees and people that like get good at their career, like and move up is they give like very good constructive feedback. So, you know, instead of someone being frustrated because the meeting's unproductive, a really amazing employee would say like they might send an email around to everyone after the meeting and say, Hey, Hey gang. Um, you know, I've been thinking about the agenda for our regular weekly meetings and I wanted to put together a potential like draft uh, agenda that we could use moving forward that I've used maybe with a previous team that worked really, really well. Here is the, the agenda that I was thinking, what do people think? Should we try this? Would it be worth doing or, or, or not? Um, you know, and I've been in those meetings before where someone on my team has like stepped up and been a leader and actually created a new agenda and it's been brilliant. And so, you know, a, like that's kind of a little bit of a meta example, but like being able to kind of pull yourself out of the frustration and work out what could be done to fix it. And then to drive that change is, is really key to moving up in your career and being a leader. And, and, and just key for, for like, for life, really. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So part of the feedback equation is delivering it, you know, stepping up, finding some actionable improvement nuggets mm-hmm. and courageously, you know, putting it forth in a kind of appropriate diplomatic way. And so how about on the receiving feedback side of things? Yeah. And I'd say like, this is probably where most people struggle, right? Like everyone says they want feedback but it's like until they get it about something that they weren't expecting it for that they always struggle to accept it. And then they push back and then it defeats the purpose because the person giving you feedback 
now concede that you're defensive and just like breaks the relationship down. So the first thing that I like to try and help my team kind of be more aware of is that like when someone's giving you feedback, um, you need to remember that like they're taking a risk in giving you feedback um, because, you know, people typically don't like to receive feedback, but like feedback is the only way we grow. And so you need to kind of like, A, remember that, but B, just like stop the first reaction that you have. And the first reaction that like 99.9% of people have is like to disagree or to give an example for why you did that or just to start to like rationalize like what happened. Um, and I think what people don't realize is like whoever is often giving the feedback doesn't really care for why you're doing it. Like they probably already know why themselves but they're giving it to you just so that you can be clear that like, this is something that needs to be improved on. So, you know, like, like let's say as an example, like, um, you know, you give someone, someone gives you feedback that, Hey, you like talked too fast in that meeting and it made it hard for people to follow. Um, which meant that like, you know, people left the meeting without really understanding what the goal of the meeting was, you know, and you know, a typical person might say like, well, you know, I, I had to rush because we had limited time. Um, and that's not the point. Like the point isn't that you had limited time. The point is that like, well, because you rushed, because there was limited time, now like the message was lost and people don't know what it is. So instead of like refuting the feedback and arguing with the like the lesson there is like, oh, great. Thanks so much for that feedback, boss. Like what I might do next time is if I see that like we're running out of time, I might just say, hey, guys, let's like take the 20 minutes back in your day and I'm going to schedule a new meeting to run through what I was going to run you through because we need more time. Like that's how you respond in a proactive way and you learn from something. And so, you know, anyway, back on track, like um, first thing to do, I guess, is to stop that reaction. The second thing I recommend people do is like, remember that you asked feedback, feedback is something that you want. Um, third or fourth thing is really just to say thank you, like thank the person for the feedback. And if it's complex feedback that you really need time to deconstruct, then I always recommend my team just like say to the person, hey, I really appreciate your feedback. Um, I've taken down notes, like, and I actually like write them down, um, and say, Hey, if it's okay with you, I'm, I'm going to get back to you maybe tomorrow. Cause I would love to like really digest this info and, and get back to you with a really thoughtful response. I hope that's okay. No one's going to say to you, no, it's not okay. You need to respond to my feedback immediately right now. Um, and that'll yeah. give you time to cool down, to think about it more, you know, properly and to, to realize that like, actually this is helpful. This is good. Um, and so, you know, once you start to get into a good habit of doing that, a few ways I recommend people get better at this and, and get better at getting more feedback so they grow faster in their careers is just, you know, telling them that they need to ask for feedback regularly. So, you know, some of my best employees, after every single one of our one-on-ones, they'll just say to me, hey, Ryan, thanks for this. This is really helpful today. Um, what's like one more thing that you would like to see me doing more or less of? And I'll just leave it open any question there. And I might say, Hey, you know what? Like, I can't think of anything this week. Like you're doing a really good job. Um, or I might say, Hey, you know, yeah, you did this thing really well this week. Although I felt like, you know, when you did this thing, um, it kind of slowed you down and maybe next time you can do this. So just teaching team members to not be afraid to ask for feedback is key. Um, and, um, you know, even if you're meeting with like an executive or you're in the elevator with a boss or someone more senior, like, you know, maybe like don't ask them for feedback on yourself because like they probably don't know who you are or they probably like haven't been working really closely with you. And so they can't give you really helpful feedback. But for those sorts of people, like what I would recommend asking is saying something to them like, hey, you know, you obviously have an amazing leadership team. 
Um, I'm curious, like when you're building that leadership team, like what qualities do you look for in those leaders or, you know, what are your best like direct reports? Like what do they do differently than everyone else? Um, so at least that way now you can get insight from an executive that maybe can't give you specific feedback. Does that mm-hmm. make sense, Pete? Yeah, no, I really like that. And what you said about that, just note that the person who's giving you feedback is taking a risk is excellent in terms of reframing the whole thing. Mm. You know, your first reaction indeed could be like, that jerk, like, oh, spare me. Does this guy have a clue? You know, whatever, insert the defensive reaction or, or whatever, as opposed to to note that. I mean, unless, of course, you know, there's a few sociopaths out there, but I mean, for the <laughs> most part, right? For the most part, yeah. when someone shares an observation about how you could improve, that is a kind act. I went to a leadership conference, it was called Leadership. They said, feedback is love. I thought that's well said. It's a kind gesture and it does require risk because the person on the other end may very well think less of you <laughs> for having provided it. And so if you start there, that just kind of puts you in, I think, a much more receptive place. Like, you know what, this person cares enough about me to take the risk that I'm gonna be mad at them. That's pretty cool. Even though I don't really like or agree with what they're saying to me right now. I'm going to chew on it a little more. Exactly. You know, like trying to think, I think about the intentions behind the feedback is key. And so like if it's feedback that's coming from your direct boss, like have everyone give you, that gives you feedback, like that's the one person that you just shouldn't push back on most likely because like they know you intimately. They probably work with you very closely. If they're giving you feedback, like they're only giving you feedback to try and help you. Otherwise, what's the point? And, but I'd say like, you know, if you are getting, if you get feedback from someone else in the business and you disagree with it or something like that, maybe you chat with your boss about it. But also at the same time, I still don't think you change the way you respond to it. Like I think the, the response is still, Hey, thanks so much for that feedback. I really appreciate it. I'll, I'll be sure to think about that and think about how I can respond differently next time. And whether or not you actually do it or not, if you think it's like a load of crap, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, like, you know, the way you respond is key. And if you respond, in a defensive way, you're basically kind of like voiding that relationship growth opportunity with that person. If you respond in a really good way, regardless of whether you actually implement the feedback or not, like you're kind of by doing so showing and telling the person that like you're benefiting from the feedback and it was helpful. And that will only help you in terms of your relationship with them. And, you know, what's the point in calling out to them that like their feedback sucks or it's inaccurate? Mm-hmm. You know, is it going to really help you? I, I think you just sometimes need to think about that. <laughs> it's just that notion that if you make it really difficult, they're like, all right, you know, not worth it. Uh, just keep my mouth shut and not share any useful tips <laughs> in the future. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, and then that person might then also think that like you disagree with them or now you don't like them because they took that risk and gave you that feedback or a bunch of different things. So, um, so yeah, I'd say like that's kind of how I think about that. Um, and then I think, you know, the, to wrap it up, I guess, Pete, with my presentation, my, where I then went to kind of towards the end was really, um, you know, I wanted people to better understand, like, what are some like really like small hacks that you can do really quickly. And one of the things that I mentioned was, you know, helping people grow their network. And so something that like I always do on LinkedIn and, you know, some people will probably disagree and don't think this is the best strategy, but uh, it works for me. And I, I'm a big fan is. Whenever someone kind of looks at my profile on LinkedIn, I always add them to my network. Um, and so I just basically like on my commute home or if I'm on the bus or, you know, if I'm doing, if I'm bored and I'm somewhere, I'll open up LinkedIn and I'll just look at who has looked at my profile. And every single person that looked at my profile that I'm not connected with, I just tap the connect button on them. And all of those people always connect with you because like they, they've looked at you first. So when you then- they started it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They started it and they were, they were interested in you. 
So like the reason why that's important is it helps you grow your network. So the next time you change jobs or you share an article about yourself on LinkedIn or share anything, there's more eyeballs that can potentially see your posts um, to then help like it and help perpetuate more people seeing it. So that's one thing I always recommend. And you know, that's worked well for me to the point where now I think I have something like 33,000 followers and connections on LinkedIn. And do you have a particular message that you send them when you connect? Like, hey, saw you looking at me or what, what is it? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't send anything. Okay. <laughs> I don't have time for that, to be honest. <laughs> and also, I feel like that, yeah. I mean, some people do that. And I think if you have the time to send a message, like, awesome, a power to you. Um, I just haven't gone down that path. Um, so that would be like the one thing I recommend. The other thing with regard to LinkedIn is what I always done in my career is um, I always kind of work out what's the company that I want to work for next. Um, and what I'll do is I basically will do a search on the LinkedIn app and I'll search maybe recruiter and then I'll tag the companies that I want to work for. So like, you know, let's say if you want to work at Facebook and Amazon and Snapchat, you would search for recruiter and then you would search those companies in LinkedIn. And then I would then tap on the plus to all those people. Now, now what that's doing is like a recruiters never like say no to people that add them on LinkedIn mm. because naturally like their network is what makes them good at their job. And the bigger their network, the better they are typically. Um, so they'll always accept. But the other great thing is now not only have they accepted and you'll probably get their email address and potentially their phone number through their LinkedIn profile, but they will now also be seeing your content. So as you do that tactic I mentioned about building your personal brand, where you're creating that unique content for your company blog and for other articles, when you start to share that on LinkedIn, you'll start to be get, become more known as a thought leader in whatever your space is. And now recruiters that might in the future see you and recruit you for a job will start to like recognize your name and know that you're good at marketing or accounting or recruiting or whatever it is that you do. And so... That's just like a very easy way to build your network. And, you know, that's helped me get now get to the point where I probably receive like, you know, three to five different emails a day, maybe on like a good day from recruiters offering me board roles or, you know, interesting CMO roles at different companies. And, you know, I don't need to engage with them if I don't want to, but, it, you know, it's nice knowing that there's options available if the time should ever arise where I need that, you know? Mm-hmm. So there, yeah, I think a big kind of broad like set of really, you know, some of those like lessons that I think I've learned, Pete, over, you know, the last decade or so of my career. And I, you know, as you kind of mentioned, as we've been talking about, I just think it's like there's so many things that you can do in your career to help you move faster. And by doing so, it helps your company move faster. And I think those two can always be aligned. Um, and that's really the sweet spot. So you shouldn't be doing stuff that's just good for your company and not good for you. Like try and do stuff that's good for both sides. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, Ryan, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No, I think that's good background. I mean, for anyone that wants to connect with me, obviously, you know, my, you know, my details, I'm sure are listed in the podcast and feel free to just search my name online. I am very accessible via any social network, really. Awesome. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I think like something that I find really inspiring is just um, leaders that aren't afraid to like fill leadership voids. So I don't know if this is necessarily like a quote, but it could be, but, um, you know, I think of like businesses as just being these organizations with like holes within them, kind of like Swiss cheese. And, um, and I think, you know, a really strong leader starts to see those different like deficits in a business and isn't afraid sometimes to actually fill the gap, um, and maybe step on someone's toes that wasn't filling the gap, but should have been filling the gap. And, 
I think that's been something that's like been, you know, an important thing that's helped me grow in my career. And it's not easy to always do, but it's worked for me. So I'd say like filling the leadership voids within the business is, you know, the fastest way to move up in a business and drive impact in a business would maybe be my self self created quote right now on the fly. <laughs> oh, sure thing. And how about a favorite book? The first one that I'd say probably less less focused on business, but I think there's impacts to me from a business perspective is The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Um, absolutely love it. I think it's like a really good book and I try and reread it at least once a year, if not more, more than that. Um, but it just kind of helps you like really focus on what you can do right now and what's important in the moment. Um, really good book, I think, for folks that, you know, sometimes suffer with um, you know, feelings of depression or, you know, feelings of anxiety or feelings of, um, you know, trying to always achieve more and need more and not have enough. Um, really amazing book, big fan of, um, mindfulness and, and all of Eckhart Tolle's work. Um, then the, maybe the other book that's a little bit more business focused is a book called Radical Candor by Kim Scott that I absolutely love. Um, and Kim, you know, published the book, I want to say last year, maybe early, early 2017. And it's all about basically how to give feedback to your employees so that you challenge them really directly. But while at the same time, they know that you really care about them personally. Um, and that's helped me, I think, become a better leader. But I'm always trying to improve. Well, that's awesome. We had Kim on the show and it's definitely oh, powerful, powerful stuff. And how about a favorite tool? Something that helps you be awesome at your job. There's a ton. I mean, I'm a massive fan of HubSpot as a marketer. So like HubSpot would probably be my favorite marketing tool. And then Asana would probably be my favorite productivity tool. Like my whole team, our whole company actually, G2 Crowd runs on HubSpot for marketing um, and, and Asana for productivity and task management. So massive fan of Asana. Um, and yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. And a favorite habit? Favorite habit. Um, it's kind of, I guess, is like like a semi tool slash habit. But I'm a big fan of like um, light therapy. Actually, I'm like a geek when it comes to like biohacking and neurohacking. And so, um, for anyone that's like interested in trying to like you know have more energy in the daytime or to you know work better throughout nighttime or have better attention, I tell them like I, I use a device called the Juve J O O V V dot com. It's basically kind of like this wall unit um, that hangs from a door um, and it's got like red lights and infrared lights on it. And so I will literally like every morning and every night, like stand in front of it for 10 minutes. Um, and it's like good for resetting circadian rhythms. It's really good for your skin. Um, it's good for kind of like inflammation in your bones. I'm obsessed with it. Like red light therapy, infrared light therapy is like my biggest favorite habit and hack. Um, and uh, the technical term for what it is for anyone that really wants to geek out, it's called photobiomodulation. And there's like a lot of research now coming out of Harvard and MIT that shows the benefits of what um, near infrared light and red light therapy can do for your brain and for your cells and your mitochondria. So that's probably my big habit. And, and favorite fun, fun thing. Intriguing. Thank you. <laughs> and do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? You know, I would say like, um, oh gosh, the, the one thing that I, I never see enough of in business is like people just like really owning their outcomes and committing to their growth. Um, you know, and I think like I've always had to throughout my career, I've never been given a promotion just because like I've always... A, earned it, but B, like earned it and then told my boss that I'd earned it and said, hey, like, this is what I need. If you want to hold on to me and you want me to keep driving impact at this company, like, this is what I want. Um, and 
And I think more people can do that because there's so many amazing people and businesses that are driving impact. And it's not that their bosses or their businesses aren't are trying to intentionally overlook them um, and not give them that raise or that promotion or that new business opportunity. A lot of the time, it's just that everyone's busy and no one sometimes realizes it. And so, like, I think my one big thing, you know, in addition to kind of what we've been talking about all about this is just that, like, speak up. And if you're unhappy, tell your boss. If you want a new challenge, tell your boss. If you think that you're undervalued, tell your boss and frame it in a way in which that it's not a complaint, but that it's a constructive thing. So, you know, explain to them how much you love the business and how you want to drive more impact, but you don't feel like you're valued. And here's why and here's what you need to change. And that'd be my one big, you know, challenge and CTA for people. Um, in addition to just like, you know, follow me on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Snapchat and all the channels and, and feel free to connect with me and share your, your challenges or your thoughts and feelings with me on this. And if you agree, disagree or anything, I, I, I really am super social and I respond to everyone that, that messages me, assuming they message me with nice messages <laughs> <laughs> that are constructive. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. I wish you tons of luck at G2 Crowd and all you're up to. Thanks so much, Pete. Really appreciate your time. And thanks everyone for listening. I loved Ryan's perspective when he said that when someone's giving you feedback, they're taking a risk because so often it can be kind of like you're only thinking about yourself in the feedback situation. Like, how dare they? They don't know. They don't understand the context, you know, kind of those defensive triggers. But to know kind of where they're coming from and wow, they really do care if they're going to take that risk, stick their neck out and put themselves on the line in that fashion. I think that goes a long way in diffusing that defensive reaction before it even starts. So good stuff from Ryan. Hope you dug that and more. Again, the show notes transcript and more is over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F361. I hope you'll push subscribe. If you do, you'll hear from our next guest. It's Chris Westfall. He was guest back at episode five. And boy, we've both grown a lot. In the meantime, he has got a new book coming out all about leadership language and how you speak and communicate in such a fashion. Hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you.